Simple Beep, episode 64, Bit, Architecture Changes. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And we are recording this episode on what is a big day for Apple, and you probably have a whole lot of Apple podcasts, because today was the 2017 fall iPhone launch event. There were some leaks beforehand and a lot of big Apple news. And of course, we aren't going to cover any of that because it's all brand new stuff. Although I will say that Apple did um, a little bit of uh, nice retrospective, especially because they were opening the Steve Jobs Theater for the first time. This was the first event there. And there was some nice look back at the work and life of Steve Jobs in the opening of the keynote. And there's one other thing that uh, really ties into what we're going to talk about today is the fact that they introduced new iPhone hardware and, of course, the final announcement of iOS 11. And that's doing something that is ushering out an era, which is ushering out the 32-bit era for iOS devices. And we're going to get into exactly what that means uh, in just a moment here. But first, we'd like to acknowledge a couple of the things that were announced uh, as kind of parts of the larger announcements today uh, that do harken back to the usual era of Apple products that we talk about on this podcast. The final release of iOS 11 uh, was leaked, as Ed mentioned before, and I think is going to start circulating in its final form to developers today. And it is confirmed to have a couple new wallpapers that uh, make use of the original Apple logo's six colors in a kind of diagonal band across the screen. And they look really good, and I think I can speak for both of us when I say we're we're excited to have them on our devices and maybe put them into wallpaper rotation. Absolutely. Apple is definitely embracing the six color scheme a little bit more, even though, e- even when it's going away in their products, you know, going from like illuminated Apple logos to stainless steel ones in software and in other products and stuff, it is coming back big. I also saw, I think, uh, maybe it was Renee Ritchie posted a shot from the new like visitor center and gift shop at Apple Park that they have Apple Park themed shirts that are like the outline of the spaceship building. And some of them are solid color and some of them have the rainbow. One other thing that I noticed as it went by very quickly is that a big feature in iOS 11 is going to be Face ID, or this is actually a feature of the new iPhone 10, uh, which was officially announced today. And one of the things, they showed some of the setup process and the, the icon that it shows when it is doing your authentication. Like with Touch ID, it showed the little fingerprint outlines filling in gradually as it was doing the authentication process. So there's this little animation of a smiling face that to me really harkens back to both the Happy Mac and the Mac OS logo. So it's really tied into uh, that sense of Apple history there. It's also just really cute. <laughs> yeah, agreed. It reminded me of, um, I think this was also the face that was in the old like System 7 era, users and groups, icons and control panel for networking and permissions, all the same like like kind of curvy nose and simple stick eyes and grin. So those are the brand new things that made us think of the past. But now let's get into this big transition that's going on 
in iOS and big transitions of the same sort that have happened in the past. So what's happening now is that iOS is going 64-bit only. And we should probably step back for a moment and talk about what the heck that actually means. Because, And I will preface this by saying that I will probably get a little bit of this wrong because it is pretty like down nitty gritty details, computer science, hardware stuff, which is not my forte. I'm, you know, more of an end user, power user, software guy, but I'll, I'll do my best to explain this. So it has to do with the processors that are used in the device. And going back in history, this was almost always referring to the CPU of the device and what it means to have a certain bit processor, and these would be 8, 16, 32, 64, the powers of 2, is that that's basically um, it's sometimes called like the width of the processor, because it means that, you know, everything in the processor is handled in ones and zeros. And you can imagine uh, that those ones and zeros are passed sort of in bunches, uh, instead of just one at a time. So you aren't scanning down a big long string of ones and zeros, or that would be like one bit. But instead, you get 16 bits at a time, or 32 bits at a time, or 64 bits at a time. And then each one of those is a processor cycle. And so the more data that you can pump through, in some ways, the faster that you can make the processor work to do certain things. This is a oversimplification. But the fact of the matter is that every single instruction that the processor does expects to get a certain amount of data, and that's really baked into the hardware. And so it says, every time that you run some data through me, I expect 16 bits, or I expect 32 bits. And all of my instructions are built that way. And so if you give me some other number of bits, things are going to go very badly, like, you know, just like, crash, done. <laughs> so software has to be built to accommodate the hardware in this sense. And so on the Mac, going all the way back, uh, the original Macintosh, the 128K, every Mac from the original more or less had a 32-bit CPU. So there, <laughs> there's an asterisk here in our outline having to deal specifically with the Motorola 68000 processor that was in the original Macintosh. In the Apple II before that, all of those were 8-bit processors. The first with a 68K processor to be built by Apple was, of course, the Lisa, not the Macintosh, and it was running, I believe, in strictly 16-bit mode. But the original Mac had this sort of 1632-bit hybrid mode, and I like I said, I don't understand the exact silicon uh, computer science way of explaining this, but it is to say that it was able to handle things in either 16 or 32-bit chunks. Um, basically, it could say it, it could run operations on either of them. So it had a 32-bit instruction set. So if it got 32 bits of data at once, it wasn't totally confused or overwhelmed. Uh, but it had both of these modes going all the way back to the original Mac. And then that era persisted for a very long time. Yeah, and we'll get into a bit of the transition later. Uh, but while we're still addressing 32-bit Mac hardware... Oh, that's a terrible pun. Addressing 32-bit oh, hardware. I didn't even try that. Because <laughs> this is one of the other things, is that um, for for memory... 
there's different types of addressing. And basically, if you're, you know, if you are manipulating memory, every bit or byte of memory has an address. I think it's by byte. And so that is to say, which actual physical piece of memory is this going to go into? And it has a, a unique number that is the address. Well, if you have, say, 32-bit addressing, that means that you can have 10 to the 32 bytes of RAM. But we now know that, of course, our, our machines now have more than 10 to the 32 bytes of RAM. You know, that's, I think that's, it's at most like a gig or two. And, you know, I'm sitting in front of a machine with 16 gigs of RAM. Many have 32 now. Um, many of us want even more. And so that's another one of the limitations of having, um, you know, these lower bit architectures is it also uh, could limit the amount of RAM that you're using. The 32-bit CPU was a mainstay of classic Mac hardware for the 68K line, the PowerPC line, and even beyond. But in a kind of a flip side, the majority of the Mac since the Intel transition has been powered by 64-bit processors. There were, however, 32-bit Intel CPUs pretty much in the initial model of each Mac line uh, after it transitioned. So that would be like the first MacBook, the first Mac Mini, the first iMac, MacBook Pro, etc. And a fun tidbit, at least for all the ones that I just named, they were Core Duo uh, processors. But there is one lone entry that was a 32-bit Core Solo Intel processor, which was the first Intel Mac Mini in February 2006. But the transition to 64-bit processors in Intel came pretty quickly after that. And so we can think of these things in terms of like generations. And like I said, the 32-bit era on the Mac was an exceptionally long one. If you want to think of maybe some shorter generations, this is not Mac hardware, but it's a good reference, is if you think back to classic video game consoles, it was pretty common to sort of tout the features of new consoles based on their processor architecture. So going from the NES to the SNES went from an 8-bit to 16-bit architecture, and they would talk about 16-bit graphics and 16-bit sound and all of the things. What they meant by that was the the type of computation that they could do in those areas by moving to this architecture. There was the 32-bit uh era of gaming that was kind of kicked off by the PlayStation, or at least headlined by it. Uh, And then the last era that really went on this kick, I would say, is the one that came basically sort of half a generation after that with the Nintendo 64, which had 64 right there in the name. It did, in fact, have a 64-bit architecture, but people realized at that point that, you know, widening the path was not, and and getting more data per instruction was not the thing that was going to give them the best performance gains or the type of performance gains that they needed in the future and of course we see that evolving now you know th- things like um moving computation from CPUs to GPUs having these different types of instruction sets like there are all these different other ways to optimize and so now we're not just going to 128 256 yeah we don't have 256 bit processors in iPhones or Macs or really in anything but like maybe a very specialized application. And that's not the way that we really tend to think of these things anymore, which is maybe why something like a 32 to 64 bit transition happening in 2017 could sneak up on some people. It's it's not one of the like 
checklist features that we think about when we deal with hardware now. But it was back in that era, you know, late 80s and early 90s, mid 90s, uh, it was definitely something that was like, if you could get a wider architecture, if you could have a higher bit processor, you were going to see massive, massive gains. Kind of analogous to like the megahertz slash megapixel races that kind of dominated a lot of people's purchasing decisions for a while when it was like, well, it's, it's more than that. Apple famously tried to counter the megahertz myth uh, for a lot of the, the power PCs run. Right. And that was, you know, that is more down to like instruction sets where you were comparing basically 32-bit processors to other 32-bit processors that had slightly different ways of processing data as opposed to going from an 8-bit processor to a 16-bit processor. The amount of data that you could actually push through that processor is the width times the megahertz, basically, right? Because each cycle is you can send 8 bits or you can send 16 bits. Um, So you could double the amount of data being processed uh, by the CPU with that kind of architecture change, or you could have those tweaks. Um, But yeah, it it all breaks down after a point. And this is why we have things like, you know, like Geekbench now that try to compensate for this in some way or have have a, a, a sort of normalized score that can tell you how a processor fares against something else, because it's not just a um, one number against another or just, you know, multiply two numbers together and get a sense of like raw power. So yeah, a lot of this is about finesse and the way that the rest of the hardware and the way the operating system handles the architecture. And every time that there's an architecture transition, we're going to see this over and over in the Mac is Every time there's an architecture transition, either from a different size, you know, a different width of chip, or uh, an architecture transition of the, of the instruction set type, like the move from uh, PowerPC to Intel, there's a lot that has to go on to make that l- less of an abrupt process. I won't say it's a smooth process. It's never a smooth process, and it's almost always a multi-year process. So... We said that the first Mac had a 32-bit processor asterisk um, because it was essentially doing certain things with this 32-bit bus, uh, and it could address 32-bit memory addresses and things like that. Um, But the first full 100% 32-bit support didn't come until System 7, and so apparently before this, there was actually a 24-bit address space for, for the RAM, uh, so it meant that more RAM could be addressed, and then there was the issue of the, the CPU instructions themselves. So the operating system went full 32-bit in, uh, in System 7, but this caused a lot, of, a lot of problems. You have to make some sort of ca- compatibility layer for the older applications that just don't expect that to be there. Uh, and if you just start passing data in a line uh, and you expect that it to be chunked out in 24-bit sections and you know you're making a cut every 24 and then the computer starts making a cut every 32, you are out of line almost immediately. But the operating system had things to handle this and they encouraged app developers, well, we didn't call them app developers then. <laughs> uh, they encouraged for applications to go, quote, 32-bit clean, 
which means that they expected to natively send everything, address everything 32-bit, do all 32-bit instructions, uh, and then it gives them uh, access to the greater memory space. So yeah, that 24-bit address space gave 8 megabytes of RAM, which is not very much at all. <laughs> um, although it was kind of right, I guess that was sort of right in the mid to high end of what you would expect on a Mac in, when System 7 was released in 91. Um, you could imagine that there were a lot of people who were doing desktop publishing and things like that at the time who said, gee, I could really use more than 8 megabytes of RAM. Gee, I could really use an application that could use more than 8 megabytes of RAM. Because this was the issue, was that even though the operating system could go much larger at that point, maybe you've got a machine with 32 megabytes of RAM, but you've got an old application that expects that the maximum that it'll ever see on the system is 8 megabytes, so it can't use 24 of the 32 available megabytes of RAM on the system. So it was this issue of, you know, do apps get updated? Do apps get left behind? Do they take full advantage of the system? And like I said, there were it it wasn't a clean transition either. So some Macs that uh, shipped around the same time that System 7 would have come pre-installed could take full advantage and address the full 32-bit memory space. Uh, some were able to be upgraded with no problem. And then there was kind of like this middle wedge where some Mac models had, quote, dirty ROMs. And it wasn't like the original 68,000 processor that was like kind of cheating 16 or 32-bit. And uh, I don't claim to know exactly the full hardware engineering or computer science behind it. But these dirty ROMs, according to at least one article, needed a little bit of help on the software side to fully uh, address the 32-bit space. And so there were some additional, basically, system extensions that you could install for these Macs. And uh, some of the Macs with dirty ROMs were like the SE30, the first couple machines in the 2 line, the 2, the 2X, etc. And uh, so there are some extensions like the 32-bit enabler and mode 32 that could help uh, help the system fully take advantage of the 32-bit memory address space. And uh, so we'll put some links to these in the show notes. There's a fun article from uh, Tidbits, the the venerable Mac site, uh, that just has a fun anecdote I wanted to say that where um, the items I launch at startup consume more memory than 24-bit addressing makes available. So if I forget to re-enable mode 32 and the 32-bit enabler, the Mac gets confused when it uses absolutely all of the available memory with 10 more applications still left to launch. Oh no, you're, you're, you're in a bind at that point. <laughs> yeah. No virtual memory and oof. <laughs> Talk about, yeah, uh, extensions manager, conflict catcher and all that stuff. Uh, and speaking of mode 32, one of the, uh, one of these extensions was actually co-developed with Connectix, which were they at one point ever uh, involved with RAM Doubler? They were the creators of RAM Doubler, and it was their first hit application. Yes. So yeah, it's it all it's all tied together. Where <laughs> all the like the virtual memory RAM Doubler stuff, uh, full uh, access to the 32-bit memory space, uh, Connectix has its its little software fingers in there. Yeah, the kind of stuff that you could pull off with these control panels and extensions is that you could do such low level injection into the system that, you know, we said like, well, the operating system has to have a way to sort of 
gracefully smooth over for these old apps. But a third party could do just the same thing, which you could absolutely not do on, say, iOS, for example, right? No one is going to be... I even saw something as I was preparing for this. Someone's like, oh, well... Uh, iOS 11 is going to drop 32-bit support, and we want to we want to save some of these classic games and classic apps. And so, I guess this is one more reason to jailbreak. And someone's like, "You've got to be kidding me! No one is going to re-implement 32-bit support for an iOS 11 jailbreak if it's even possible. Like that is not happening." Whereas the Mode 32, like that was a third-party extension, right? If it was, it at least had like Apple blessing. I think there was some kind of collaboration in there. But yeah, one of the links I found said Connectix uh, at least like started the development of it. So it's like a third party developer could sweep in and come so low into the operating system that it would basically say, I'm just going to intercept every instruction and every piece of memory addressing that's going to happen. Uh, That's all going through me and I'm going to make it so that it's like you're taking full advantage of this hardware um, or or translate everything on the fly for you so that it takes full advantage of the hardware. Or in the case of RAM doubler, pretend that there's hardware there that actually isn't <laughs> and try not to you know, crash and burn by, by having a really slow, swappy virtual memory implementation. Um, but that kind of stuff just doesn't happen anymore, even though it's like, except in the few cases where Apple does it themselves to try to paper over these things. Before we move on into the 64-bit transition, a quick uh, tangent that involves the the phrase 32-bit, but it's not necessarily you know hardware instructions and memory addressing. Uh, just a recall that uh, 32 can also apply to, 32 bits can also apply to the bit depth, the the range of colors that your hardware can show. Um, we talked about 32-bit icons in our episode 18 which introduced the millions of colors icons with uh, translucency. And 32-bit quick draw was also uh, not an initial thing. The, the full color layer of the Macintosh operating system wasn't there to begin with. The first Macintosh was black and white. And so 32-bit quick draw was something that had to be added in to the system software. It was released in May 1989, and uh, there was even a 32-bit quick draw kind of extension to add to older Macs with uh, video cards that could support it because as of the Macintosh 2CI, 32-bit quick draw was actually a part of its ROM. Right. So if you have 32 bits of color depth and you're, you're pushing pixels, uh, so the way you would get to 32 bits of color depth is that you would have eight bits for each of the red, green, and blue channels. So that's, quote, millions of colors. Uh, in the case of the icons that you were talking about, Brian, then you'd have an 8-bit alpha channel for the total of 32. And then if you were on something that couldn't process 32 bits of information simultaneously, you would have to do two instructions to draw a pixel that way, right? Every time, every pixel. Uh, whereas if you have a 32-bit architecture, you have quick draw and everything is all lined up, then that's a you know, major gain in graphics performance. One thing I learned when looking all this stuff up is that the SE30 actually supported color. Uh, You just had to output to an external display. Ah, that'll do it. It's something I just never even thought to consider because it was an all-in-one and the uh, supplied internal display was black and white. That's the same as, aren't there at least 
there are at least a couple models of more recent MacBook or MacBook Pro that were not Retina themselves, but could drive a, a similar resolution monitor on the outside. Yeah. So now let's get into the max 64-bit transition, which has, like I said, it's a process um, because it started, gosh, what, 11, 12 years ago, uh, maybe 11 years ago, and it's still ongoing. So this is going to be at least a dozen-year process, and it may end next year, but we aren't 100% sure. Uh, so while the Mac was still on uh, pre-Intel processors, the Motorola series, PowerPC, G3, G4, uh, those were all 32-bit. The G5 was actually a 64-bit processor, and the press release is still live on Apple's press website, heralding the G5 as the uh, the world's first 64-bit desktop computer, desktop processor. And so, obviously, uh, the we were in the OS X era at that point, and OS X was updated to uh, address 64-bit, support 64-bit software. Um, but I think the real story, obviously because it is still going, is uh, the transition to um, Intel and eventually to 64-bit only on the Mac. Well, so this press release is dated June 23, 2003. So I'm, I'm putting the clock on this transition at 14 years and counting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's more of an era than a transition in and of itself at that point. But the the 64-bit era on the Mac in terms of hardware uh, really did come in with Intel processors. Uh, There were a handful of 32-bit Intel processors, some of the very first ones that were supported, uh, but then very quickly went over to them on the iMac. The late 2006 model was the first one there with the 64-bit Intel Core 2 Duo. And with that hardware in place, it was kind of just uh, sitting around waiting for things to catch up to it uh, for a little bit, uh, both in terms of the operating system and in terms of the other applications that ran on top of it. So in OS X Leopard, that was the first time that 64-bit applications were supported. And then a couple iterations later, Lion was the first 64-bit only operating system. So that meant that all of the operating system code was optimized and designed and would only run on 64-bit hardware. Of course, this meant that a certain number of machines were left behind and not able to upgrade to Lion. Uh, And there are those dedicated Snow Leopard people. They're still out there. (laughs) And of course, one of the things that going 64-bit only meant was, uh, I I don't think that this was the reason that PowerPC was dropped, but it would certainly be a contributing factor, is that uh, the PowerPC architectures, except for those handful of G5s towards the very end, were all 32-bit. So they were eliminating the 32-bit instructions across the board, and that meant that all of the PowerPC instructions, which you know, of course, we're, we're taking up silicon and operating system resources as well. That was sent away. One of the interesting things that did persist for a while, uh, even when uh, the operating system was 64-bit, and the expectation was that many applications would also be 64-bit, 
this was a process. And uh, you can poke developers with a sharp stick, but it doesn't mean that they're going to update their stuff immediately, even when uh, Steve Jobs gets up there on stage and says, you just run it through Xcode one more time, it'll take you no time, you know, those, those kinds of things. So there was... Uh, there was still support for 32-bit applications, still still goes on to this day. So if you have an old 32-bit application, not a PowerPC application, but a 32-bit Intel application, it will still open up and run. Uh, the libraries are all still there buried somewhere waiting to be activated inside of, uh, of macOS, and uh, off it'll go. Uh, there was one thing, though, in this transition period was that uh, apps were being released uh, in these universal binaries, uh, that used to mean Intel and PowerPC. Then it kind of meant 32 and 64 bit Intel. I suppose you could have all three in a universal binary as well. And, uh, because some of those, uh, transitions to 64 bit had been done hastily, sloppily, or there were just ordinary bugs in the 64-bit code, or maybe they relied on a 64-bit library that they didn't fully understand uh, or didn't fully match the 32-bit version of the same library. Sometimes they would crash and do weird things. And so for a while, there was an option to run a given application in a 32-bit emulated mode. Say, run this as if it was a 32-bit application. Only look at that code. Uh, and that was actually just a little checkbox in the get info window in the finder. If you got info on an application, that was one of the options there. I just did it uh, before we recorded, and I didn't see any in my current applications folder. So uh, either that means that all the applications I have in there are 64-bit only, which is a real possibility because you know I'm trying to keep up to date, or that that feature is uh, hidden and going away uh, because the entire notion of 32-bit apps on the Mac may soon be going away. I just uh, ran it myself, and the only it looks like the only stuff I have that's still 32-bit on my system is StarCraft, which I just downloaded because they claim to have remastered it. I mean, they did remaster it. It looks great. But apparently, they didn't update <laughs> the actual application. So uh, fingers crossed that that happens. So they just give it to X assets and said, here's your 32-bit application. Have a nice day. I guess so. So is it going to break next year? Well, yeah, we'll see. Because apparently, at this year's WWDC, at the State of the Union keynote, not the kind of consumer-focused keynote, um, one of the things that was mentioned is that the upcoming release of macOS High Sierra will be, quote, the last release to support 32-bit apps without compromises. Uh, so what part of that means is that developers are going to start to be <laughs> prodded with that stick, as you said earlier, to uh, submit 64-bit versions to the Mac App Store. Um, I'm sure that that will be like very tightly enforced. The developers who offer their software outside of the Mac app store may, that may be where like the compromises come in, where maybe it'll be the mode that you have to say, run this app that I was able to get onto my system in 32 bit. But, uh, you know, maybe one or two releases of Mac OS in the future, I bet, uh, it'll be 64 bit only. Yeah. It really remains to be seen what without compromises means that could, that could mean everything from slightly crashy behavior to uh, getting the dreaded, uh, like, do not enter circle with a line through it over your application's icon is just like, no, no, the system doesn't launch these anymore. And you say, well, you said compromises, and the compromise is it's dead. 
And so that brings us to the topic that inspired this episode, really, the 64-bit transition in iOS and devices that run iOS. On the hardware side, uh, we've all become accustomed to Apple's in-house designed systems on a chip. The first many systems on a chip in the iPhones were 32-bit, but as of the A7, which was first in the iPhone 5S, they are 64-bit. And uh, as happened on the Mac, there's a software and operating system transition that has been uh, slowly following behind that. People really started to take notice of this with iOS 10 last year. So what happened was uh, people started getting dire warnings when they went to launch some of their favorite, but perhaps not recently updated apps. Uh, And actually, uh, these warnings, I think, were not particularly well worded. They said something like, this application will slow down your phone. That's the kind of thing that you see on some, like, you know, pop under scammy malware web ad that's like, is your PC slowing down? Uh, And it's like, wait, why did you give that in a modal dialogue box to people? Uh, Well, I mean, it's in a sense true. So whatever engineer wrote that sentence and, you know, it, it kind of went through the chain into the betas and then the live version of iOS 10, it's maybe not the best messaging, but there is a kernel of truth in it. Because what had happened in iOS 10 was in order to save resources, uh, particularly RAM, uh, iOS 10 stopped loading the 32-bit libraries and frameworks into RAM as part of the operating system startup. So, what would ordinarily happen is you know you you boot up your phone and it's got all of these core frameworks that it just says i'm i'm reading all of this uh off of the flash putting it into ram and having the operating system ready to execute any of this code at a moment's notice and they said well so many of the newer apps uh because also around this time they started placing limitations that if you were submitting new apps or updating apps they had to be or at least support 64-bit. So what iOS would do is it would give you this terrible warning, and then if you did launch one of these, then it would go ahead and like load up all the resources that were necessary to do the smoothing over and make the 32-bit app run on 64-bit hardware. And I don't know that it necessarily like slowed down my phone. You know, I, I have a few of these apps still. I don't know that it necessarily slows my phone down like in future use, because iOS is pretty good about memory management and purging things, even if they're from the operating system itself. But it would take a while, you know, an extra 10 to 15 seconds sometimes just to launch the app to get all of that stuff in place. And so that was a Band-Aid over this problem, and it was decided, you know, the writing was on the wall. I think a lot of people... uh, a lot of people in the tech press interpreted this message properly, both in terms of what it meant that the phone was actually doing and what Apple's intending. And what they've done in iOS 11 is they've said 32-bit only apps simply will not run. Um, I don't know what happens to their icons on Springboard. I think they may just stay ordinarily, but then you get a message when you tap on the app that says 32-bit, sorry, no go. Um, so that day is coming, 
uh, iOS 11 is going to be out in what less than a week uh, from from this episode. So uh, that day is coming, and a lot of people will update their phones, and then they may have some favorite old apps, particularly games, that will be going away. And when this was announced formally at WWDC this past summer, uh, people started putting together the lists of, oh my gosh, the classic apps. Now we can call them this classic iPhone apps, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> classic <laughs> iOS apps that are going to go away. And everyone was convinced that, you know, like all of these apps are, they're, they're dead. They're dead in the water. They haven't been updated in two years. There's no way that these apps are, are going to survive. And then the first ones started to get updated. So the first one that I noticed was an old casual game, uh, Tilt to Live. Do you remember this game, Brian? I don't. I really enjoyed it. it it's a ridiculous fun game. Um, you're a little, uh, arrow that starts in the middle of the screen and these little evil red dots appear and they make formations and they hunt you down and you pick up power-ups and by tilting your phone and you have to pop as many of the dots as possible without being touched by a single one. It was a very fun, casual iPhone game. Um, it's still on my you know third screen, which is all games on my device. Um, and it's like, well... Yeah, it was fun. I don't play it that much anymore. So I don't know if it supported all the different screen sizes and things like that. Yeah, it, it was two or three years out of date. And then one day I'm updating apps on my phone and they're in the app store, updates, tilt to live. And in the in the change notes, all it said was just two words, 64-bit support. Like, we did it, guys. Keep playing. <laughs> so that was the first update that I noticed, and maybe it was not the most well-known or most popular of iOS games, but there were some that were extremely well-known, almost iconic for the days of the early iPhone, early app store that people thought were on the chopping block. Yeah, one of them is Cannabalt, the early Endless Runner. Was it the first Endless Runner? It basically defined the genre. It's So it's an early game, um, it's since been ported to everything, I think even including like in the browser natively. Well, I think that it started as a Flash game. Oh, that's right. The notion is it's an endless runner, it's a single button game, and it was controlled by the mouse with Flash. And people said when the iPhone came, it, it came out around the same time as the iPhone, it's, the original iPhone itself. And people were like, man, this game would be awesome on that iPhone. And then a year later comes the App Store, and it was, I believe, a day one App Store title. It's still being maintained by its original creator who put it in the App Store, though the company name has changed from semi-secret software to Finji. Um, And I was looking this up because Finji has released slash, I think, acquired and released and updated a, a couple other games. And one of them appears to be Aquaria, which is a port or... You know, in the same IP as a really, really old game released by Ambrosia Software. So maybe they're in the business of making sure a lot of fun uh, classic IP is uh, updated for 64 bits. But yeah, that update has come in. You can play Cannabalt on your iOS 11 device. Another uh, kind of beloved early game that really, uh, its design, I think more than any other game, evokes the like pre iOS 7 aesthetic is Ramp Champ. And this was initially released by the Icon Factory and uh, development partner, uh, DS Media Lab. 
And this was also a game that like, it was, it was beautiful. It was fun to play. It used the, the mechanics of the iPhone really well, but I think it had the, like the unfortunate timing of being released very soon after or soon before the official ski ball app. And so if you want to search for uh, a game with ski ball mechanics, you're probably going to search for ski ball and that game, which I bet was free to play uh, would be first and the results, and so everyone used that instead of Ramp Champ. Uh, and I but, think, but Ramp Champ was so much more. I mean, Ramp Champ was a it was like a mashup of carnival games because it had the target mechanics of one like if you went to a carnival or a fair and played one of the games where you got like a little water gun or had to like throw rings at targets. Uh, that was the kind of main mechanic, but then. Uh, that was the main way that you scored in the game. There were different levels, but then the mechanic was all ski ball and swiping up on the screen. And like you said, Brian, very beloved game. When the announcement came out that they were updating it for 64-bit support to preserve it for future iOS hardware, my Twitter feed just went nuts. Everyone's like, hooray, I haven't played Ramp Champ in seven years, but I'm going to play it forever now. Yeah, um, it appears to have been sold from its original creators to a new development company named Seven Gun Games. And I was looking this up, and I think at the time of their acquisition, they promised a sequel, which has not come out. But they did update it for 64-bit, so you win some, you lose some. Another uh, fun, classic game that got a 64-bit update and much acclaim for having done so is the aptly named Ridiculous Fishing, <laughs> which is like a 8-bit style game, is now updated for uh, 64-bit architecture. Uh, in the game, you do some ridiculous fishing. You have to plumb the depths of the ocean, drag up a whole bunch of fish, and then shoot them out of the air with guns. <laughs> <laughs> What can I say? <laughs> it's one of the most fun games I've ever played on iPad. I strongly suggest playing it on iPad. It has its own little like social network within the game that is full of fish puns. It's great. Yeah, real classic. So those are those are some of the games that are getting updated. And there aren't it, it's mostly games on this list, I'll, I'll admit. I think that's because you know, the business model for other types of apps is that either they're they're free and have some service component or they're uh, paid upfront apps that are continually developed and, and serve a kind of continuous purpose. Whereas with a game, if it's, if it's not something that you're going to be updating with new levels or anything like that, when the game is done and polished, it's, it is what it is. And so barring crashing bugs or things that, uh, things like this, major architecture changes. There's not a whole lot of incentive for some of these game publishers to go back. Uh, but one of the things that is a, more like a, I wouldn't say a productivity app, but more, but outside of the games category in the app store that's getting an update is the Google Earth app, which I think is great because uh, all of the Google Earth features have been collapsed into the browser on the desktop and if you have a sufficiently modern machine that can do any kind of, you know, like any kind of GPU rendering in the browser, you can have all of the full Google Earth experience just by basically clicking the satellite view. In fact, it's like the default view when you click satellite. Um, hold down the command key and start dragging around if you didn't realize this, and you can tilt the view and do everything that you would in Google Earth. The Google Earth iOS app, though, I deleted it a long time ago because it was just like 
It was slow and buggy and very iOS 6-like, and it was a 32-bit app, and they didn't really take care of it. But they also didn't take the time to fold it into the Google Maps app. So there's some disparity there. Um, Like One of the few things I'll use Apple Maps app for is if I only have an iOS device with me and I want that kind of three-dimensional full view of a city or neighborhood or terrain or something, because Google Maps just won't do it. But Google Earth will, and it turns out that they're doing not just a 64-bit update, but kind of a major feature release update to get it get it back on par with what you might expect from uh, from Google Earth or its 3D map views on other platforms, which I think is good news. That's that's an app that uh, you know I had long since deleted, but will probably be making its way back to my devices. So, did it languish in development long enough so that this big update will jump from like iOS six style to Material Design? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They skipped iOS seven entirely. I think. Excellent. <laughs> so unfortunately, though. There are some apps that are not going to make it, and the the number one reason for this is that you know when when Apple goes through these transitions, they try to be. I, I think they're trying to be like positive and say. So, so there's a section in iOS 10 settings you can go to. Um, I think it's general about applications and a list if you have any apps that are not going to make it in iOS 11, and it says something like contact the developer and tell them to please update it. But what if the developer doesn't exist anymore? Um, you know, there are development shops that have been acquired or shut down. Um, and there is no way for these apps to be updated. Some of them have already been pulled from the store, but they're they're classics and uh, they will have to run exclusively on old hardware until who knows, maybe someday uh, the Internet Archive <laughs> is uh, doing old iOS emulation. But, you know, we've we've seen how long it takes to get that sort of like second wave of nostalgia, second wave of technology being applied to this problem. Uh, so I think that these apps are going to be trapped on old devices for many years, um, if not permanently. Hope that's not too much of a downer, but let's talk about some old apps that are really great and that if you haven't updated your devices to iOS 11 or if you're holding off or you have um, an older device laying around, maybe you could uh, revisit them if if you have them still laying around. So we talked about Cannibal, we talked about uh, Ramp Champ and these games that really took advantage of the multi-touch interface and were, you know, they were hailed as being well-polished games that uh, did something that you just couldn't really do well on any other gaming platform before iOS. Perhaps one of the key examples of this is the game Flight Control, which was one... I don't know if it was an App Store day one app, but it was certainly within the first year. And this app, uh, this game was created by the developer called Firemint, Um it has this extremely catchy soundtrack that will stick in your brain forever. <laughs> in fact, to the point that when I played uh, Stagehand, which was the 
recent iOS game, I would play it on mute a lot of the time. And for whatever reason, I would get the flight control music stuck in my head. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But the the conceit of the game is that you're running an airport, you have a top-down view, and airplanes start coming in and helicopters. And they go at different speeds, and you need to get them to the appropriate runway based on their color, And you would draw paths for them, and the planes would fly on whatever path you drew for them. It could be a straight path, it could be a path that doubles back on itself. And if two planes crash, the game is over. And just, you know, something that you absolutely could not do with, certainly not with a keyboard, um, and would be just a total pain to play with a mouse. Really a multi-touch first game. Polished um, was one of those things I think... You know, it was part of the iOS App Store gold rush where people were saying people will pay for games on this platform. Um, you know, it was a three, three or four dollar game, something like that. And it was so new uh, and so refreshing and so well done that tons of people bought it. But the developer, they had this smash hit and uh, they got noticed. And Firemint was acquired by EA in 2011. And I presume that means that EA owns the intellectual property behind flight control, but they have no interest in developing on it. And so I think that maybe a year or two ago, the app disappeared from the app store. So if it's still on your device or you still have a .ipa file archived on a Mac somewhere, you have personal access to it, but it's not going to be updated and it's not going to run on iOS 11. Similarly, and maybe a little more relevant to this show, uh, the games created by the developer Freeverse have been uh, removed from the store, and it took a while to get there. Freeverse, of course, is uh, known for their classic Mac games like the Burning Monkey suite of card games or the the Butcher of Song, Jared, <laughs> or some of their other like toy utilities like Sim Stapler. And they had a couple iOS games, including uh, Burning Monkey, uh, multi-card game and warp gate, which, uh, Ed, I think you've, you've dubbed the, the like official sole successor to escape velocity for iOS. Yep. It didn't last long at all, man. I think it was only on the app store for maybe a year or two. Um, but yeah, the port of burning monkey puzzle lab, I think might actually be the first paid iOS app that I ever bought. It was very early. I want to say it was November of 2008. Um, and I love that game. It's a, it's a grade A puzzle game. Uh, and I was on a flight recently and I was like, what, what can I do to kill the time? And I'm like, I'm playing Burning Monkey, uh, <laughs> while, uh, while it still lasts. A- and then for the rest of the flight, I'm like, hang on, is my phone running slower? Because Apple told me that the 32-bit libraries would make it run slower. And I restarted my phone and then I got home and I went, wait a minute. That game was a port. So, you know, some, many of these things are ports. I think, like, even there might be a port of flight control to something else, but it wouldn't work as well. Um, I'm like, wait, that was a port. I first played that game on the Mac. It was a shareware title from Freeverse on the Mac. And so I went to the Macintosh Garden and I said, all right, if I absolutely have to, I can get my fix uh, because there's a copy of the Mac version and I'll fire up the Sheep Shaver and, uh, you know, that game will now be moved in my mind from the category of games that are on my current devices to the games that I run in emulation. 
Yeah. It happens. I, I mean, as the technology progresses, that happens to these these titles that we love. And it's really a shame, too, because Freeverse was acquired by NG Moco, the next generation mobile company. Is that really what it stands for? Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Uh, and NG Moco had a bunch of really popular games in its own right. The, uh, the game Topple, which was kind of like Tetris-y, Balance-y, and Rolando, which made use of the accelerometer to get the roly-polies around different rooms. And a sequel to Rolando as well. Yeah, yeah. And they were all huge games um, and like kind of lived up to NG Moco's name and purpose and did so well that NG Moco, I think, was one of the first recipients of the iFund, which we covered in some episode a long time. Oh, I think it was a town hall episode where we talked about the iFund was one of the introductions at Town Hall. Anyway, um huge company dedicated to mobile games. You think they'd acquire uh free versus mobile IP and keep it going. Uh sadly, no. Not only are the Freeverse titles removed from the iTunes App Store, the iOS App Store, uh the NG Moco apps are as well. So none of those are going to make it past the 64-bit I, I didn't realize that that the Rolandos were all dead. That's very sad. It is, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess NG Moco was on... They were on the wrong side of the curve for paid App Store games. Um, I remember paying $9.99 for Rolando when it came out. Mm-hmm, me too. Um, and it was great. I enjoyed it. I definitely got my 10 bucks worth out of it. But that was not the scalable business model for... App Store games from then on. And one more uh, productivity uh, app here. There, there are not very many of these. Like I said, either their utility is no more or uh, they have some sort of regular update system because it's, uh, it's an app that actually has a day-to-day function. But just recently on Twitter, someone was like, man, I wish that there was an app that I could take a picture of a font and it would tell me what font that was. And I replied to them and I said, there is an app that does that. It's called What the Font. It is 32-bit only. And in fact, was never updated for the iPhone 5 screen size. Oh, God. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's super old, but it absolutely does that. Uh, But there's no way that it's lasting. The silver lining on this one, at least, is that whatthefont.com is gone, but you can still find their website, which got pulled into my font, uh, and the web backend that was driving the whole thing still works. And so you can upload a photo through the web page, um, presumably even on iPhone, if you were, uh, if you really needed to do it on the go, not quite as elegant as a purpose-built app, but, uh, it'll do the trick. Uh, you mentioned before that, uh, you can check in the, about this Mac and you, you click through a couple buttons to see what apps on your system are still 32-bit. There's the uh, same option that you mentioned on iOS. And uh, so like I mentioned, StarCraft is my only macOS version that's going to be left in the dust eventually. Um, But apparently I am clean on iOS and all the apps that I have on my device are are safe. They're updated. That's pretty remarkable. I I must just be pack rat. I'm keeping around these old games that I have no particular use for. Um, let's see, what do I have here? I have Gravbot, which is an old casual game. Uh, Hopscotch, which was an old Foursquare location editor, but most of that got rolled into their official app. 
What the Font, Burning Monkey Puzzle Lab, Flight Control, Piction, which was a like uh, picture captioning overlay app made by a friend of a friend, and an old version of PDF Pen. I presume there's a new version of PDF Pen that I just haven't paid for. So I'm I'm more or less in the clear uh, with those those couple couple sad exceptions. I should probably play a few more games of Flight Control. Yeah, I wonder if there's going to be any kind of second uh, wind for like old iPod touches on on eBay, kind of like when uh, Flappy Bird got pulled from the App Store and people would sell devices that had the game still on it on eBay. So if people really want to play these old games, maybe uh, someone could, could make a couple bucks that way. I'm sure John Syracuse has a bunch. Back up your uh, iPhone apps to your Mac kids. <laughs> then 20 years from now, when the Internet Archive comes knocking, you'll you'll have exactly what they need. Anyhow, I think that more or less wraps up where we stand in these big transitions, one very near its end after multiple, multiple years and one moving at breakneck speed because, uh, you know, the iPhone, the iPhone stops for no one. If there's anything about the transitions, both on the Mac or on iOS that we've missed, you can uh, get in touch with us in a couple ways. There's a contact form on our website, simplebeep.com, or we're also on Twitter at simple underscore beep. You can find both of us on Twitter individually. I'm at ecormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. And I'm at bsuto, B-S-U-T-O. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.